And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery with Dr. David Stebbin, who teaches at Ohio State University in the History Department and their law school. David has authored two academic books, Arthur J. Goldberg, New Deal Liberal, and Modern Republican Arthur Larson and the Eisenhower Years. He and Joseph Mitchell co-authored New City Upon a Hill, A History of Columbia, Maryland. Today we'll be talking about his most recent book, which is aimed at a general audience, Promised Land, How the Rise of the Middle Class Transformed America, 1929-1968, which is published by Scribner. David, it's something that you address in the foreword of the book. Exactly what does middle class mean? Is it a level of income, a certain set of professions? How are you operationalizing this definition? Various people define middle class in different ways. I use a sort of a plain meaning approach. Most Americans tend to think you're middle class if you can't fairly be defined as either rich or poor. And that covers a lot of ground in between. And there's a sort of blue collar or working class version of this, the the upper part of the working class, especially in the era that I talk about, steel workers, auto workers, plumbers, carpenters, truck drivers. They made good wages, had good benefits, and they qualified as middle class in a way. There's also a kind of a white collar world, not the high end world of white collar, not management or bankers or corporate lawyers, but you might think of journalists, bookkeepers, school teachers, people who did office work of various kinds who made enough salary that they would not be considered poor by any standard and not rich by any standard. And in the era that I write about, those two worlds were different, the sort of the steelworker world and the schoolteacher world. They tended to have different interests. The steelworker world was much bigger on bowling than it was on book clubs, just to give you an example. But the point is, in terms of income, they weren't all that different. Was there a conception of the middle class before the uh, Great Depression set in? Well, there was, but it was a much smaller fraction of the overall population. Even in the most prosperous years of the mid to late 1920s, income and wealth distribution was very unequally divided. Statistically, it's about the same then as it is now. And so the middle class was somewhere in between what was sometimes thought of as the business class, affluent people, very comfortable people in the mid to late 1920s. And then people you might think of as working class, either in the urban factory kind of sense or rural people who worked on farms. And so there was a middle between them, but it wasn't very big and it wasn't very secure. And the story of my book is sort of how that relatively small group became much bigger, an outright majority of the population by the 1950s, how and why that happened and what it meant. Well, and looking at the wealth distribution being more similar to the pre-depression era for now, it seems like this may have just been an aberration in our country. During the heyday of the middle class in the 1950s and 60s, there was a tendency to think that the country had always been predominantly middle class. And that's not true. Another school of thought more recently is that it was a completely exceptional period, this period where a majority were neither rich nor poor. And there's a debate about that in the early years, the founding years of the republic. It varied a lot by state, right? And so Pennsylvania where the Constitution was written and so on, and where the government, in some sense, began during the Revolution, Pennsylvania was considered the best poor man's country in the world, in Europe. And not because most people were poor, it's that even if you showed up poor, there was so much land and so on, it was relatively easy to cease to be poor, to enter the middle class. So Pennsylvania at the founding exemplifies the great big middle class. 
And Pennsylvania is a sort of important central state colony and then state to the founding of the republic. Of course, people spread westward into places like Tennessee and Ohio, and there were a lot of family farmers. And that's the point. In other words, the middle class model of that era was much more based on family farming. And the iconic dwelling of the middle class in that early period would have been the log cabin, right? And so what's different about the period I write about is that the fraction of the population that's employed directly in agriculture is vastly less by the 1950s. Uh, the iconic dwelling is not entirely unlike a log cabin. It t tends to be a suburban ranch house. In other words, they have the same basic shape but they are in other ways very different dwellings. Another aspect that you address in the foreword for the book is that often when we talk about the middle class in America, we're talking about white middle class and we're not taking other people's experiences into account. Right. And the middle class of the era that I study, the period from the 30s through the 60s, was heavily white, although white itself is a definition that changes over time. One of the things that is inclusive, if you want to put it that way, as opposed to exclusive, is the fraction of all European-descended people who were thought of as white expanded. And so just to give one example, in the 1920s, there were a lot of Americans descended from groups in northern Western Europe who were somewhat ambivalent about whether or not people of Italian ancestry could be considered white. And by the 1950s, Italian-Americans have crossed over, so to speak, into the definition of who is white. On the other hand, it is indisputably true that this experience of an expanded middle class, while it happened for black people, was a much less common one. In other words, the fraction of all black people in this era who could be thought of as middle class was a lot smaller. And that's partly because of where black people lived then. In other words, when our story opens in the late 20s, roughly 80% of African Americans still live in the South. And the South was very heavily rural and small town. It did not have a lot of big cities. And as a legacy of the Civil War, it was distinctly poorer than the rest of the country, even during the affluent years of the mid to late 20s. And so the typical black person, statistically speaking, when the story in my book begins, was a Southerner. And so the fraction of all Southerners who could be thought of as middle class was a lot smaller then. So there's both a racial dimension and a geographic dimension. And my book goes into this, right? It looks at the Southern states as a distinct entity throughout because their experience in this area is less in terms of the expansion of the middle class. It happens, but not as much. And the same is true, of course, for African-Americans. It's one of the big points that you make in the book is contrasting the Midwest with the Mountain West and the South. There are many measures that could be used to exemplify the difference. Sometimes the one I most like to use is the difference in the length of the school year, the public school year, between Ohio and its neighbor to the south, Kentucky. And so as recently as the mid-1940s, World War II era, the length of the school year, which in Ohio was about 180 days, in Kentucky was only about 120 days. And if you lived in rural Kentucky, the likelihood that you would go through all 12 grades was really low, like 1 in 10. And that matters a lot because one of the engines of upward mobility for the middle class in my era was an ever higher percentage of people going through high school and an ever better set of public schools for them to attend. And it isn't that that didn't happen at all in the South. It just happened less, especially in the poorer southern states and border states. And Kentucky fit that description. 
school would begin after the harvest and then end as planting season began, I would guess. Correct. And if there are poor roads and inclement weather and so on, it would make it very difficult. And in the poorest years of the Great Depression, you needed to have shoes, a proper coat and so on in the winter. And so a lot of rural kids, especially in the poorer parts of the Sun Belt, really didn't do what happened in places like Iowa and Ohio, which is all of a sudden, high school had been an unusual experience. The typical experience through the Great Depression had been to go through eighth grade. But when the Great Depression materialized and there was suddenly very high unemployment for a decade, one of the changes was the disappearance of child labor because so many jobs that kids had done before, all of a sudden adults were doing because there weren't enough jobs for adults to go around. And so the solution for the parents was to keep the kids in school longer. And so it's in the 1930s, in the Frost Belt, that going through high school became the normal majority experience. And school is a convenient babysitter as well. Right. Well, it was an interesting challenge in the sense that once a large majority of kids went to high school, you had to figure out what high school was about. It wasn't just about preparing the most academically able for white-collar work. And so high school itself changed, but it gave the kids something constructive to do. And one byproduct was there were a whole lot of kids who came from families with ordinary incomes who learned more math, more science, became more literate, and became more productive and successful as a result. And so people sometimes say to me, why on earth do you begin with the Great Depression? Because it doesn't seem like a good time for the middle class at all. And they're quite correct. In the short run, things became worse. Even more people were economically insecure and more people fell out of the already kind of small middle class. But it set in motion this change in people's values and behavior priorities. In other words, in the mid to late 20s, the emphasis in the culture was on entrepreneurialism, high risk, high reward, that sort of thing. And then once the Great Depression came along, there was a real change. A very much larger fraction of the population became economically insecure and stayed that way for a long time. And all of a sudden, what did they want? They wanted an arrangement that prioritized stability and security. And that was a very middle-class, building-friendly kind of approach. And so if you had tried to tell people in 1929, you know, in six years, there'll be a social security program, I don't think anyone would have believed it. But then six years later, there was. And that marked a real revolution in how the system worked. As you said, you begin the book in earnest with uh, the Great Depression. And you write that large-scale economic disasters rarely stem from a single factor, what other ones help feed in to give the Great Depression its staying power? Well, you know, there are a lot of things. The stock market crash alone does not cause the Great Depression when it comes in the fall of 29. It exposes underlying weaknesses in the economy. Uh, too much debt owed by the Europeans to the Americans, owed by ordinary Americans to banks and to companies from which they had bought things on time. In other words, once their income stopped because they lost their jobs, if they were buying a car or a radio on time, it was very quickly repossessed, that sort of thing. But really, in part, what made the Great Depression so great was that there was an ineffective federal government response to it. In other words, in 1929, the country had a new president, Herbert Hoover, who had been a very accomplished person prior to becoming president, but he had never run for public office before. He came out of the business world. He didn't relate well to politicians. He didn't expect 
the Great Depression to happen. And so when the stock market crashed, he counseled patients and so on, and he expected that the recovery would take place. And there was something of a stock market recovery in 1930. He never saw the, the great big economic collapse coming. And he was philosophically resistant to doing things that might have made it less severe. What do I mean by that? Well, voters increasingly wanted two things more than anything else from the federal government in the early 30s. One was some kind of system of federal insurance of bank deposits, because the banking system was getting ever more unstable as a result of the mounting unemployment and economic decline. And President Hoover was philosophically opposed to having the federal government insure bank deposits. His point of view was that if you insure bank deposits, then the federal government is necessarily going to have to become involved in supervising what banks do with their money, with their investors' money, on a daily basis. Because otherwise, you might encourage irresponsible behavior by the bankers. They might make risky loans and risky investments because they could feel confident that even if everything worked out badly, the federal government would step in and insure the deposits of their depositors. And so if you're going to have a system of federal insurance for bank deposits, you're going to have to have continuing federal supervision of the banks. And he just thought that was not an appropriate function for the federal government. And so he stubbornly refused. And then the second thing they wanted, voters, by the early 1930s, was some kind of temporary emergency federal relief system. Relief being the term in those days for unemployment insurance up system of payments to people who are jobless through no fault of their own. And his view was historically the states and the localities had done this plus private charity, and it just wasn't an appropriate function for the federal government. And so even though governors and mayors pleaded with him saying that, you know, the problem of unemployment is not normal. It has overwhelmed us. We cannot cope with it alone. We need the federal government to help us. He said no. And those two things, more than anything else, assured his defeat when he ran for re-election. And so who did voters pick instead? A professional politician, someone who was very well known in the Democratic Party because he'd been around for years in Franklin Roosevelt. And professional politicians have their pluses and minuses. My background in the public sector isn't perfect and so on. But one thing that professional politicians are good at is trying to figure out what voters want and then trying to give it to them. And the view was that Herbert Hoover was not responsive to voters' desires in a crisis and that Franklin Roosevelt was. So the New Deal arrived. But the point is, it took a while for that to happen. So we had four years in which there really was not a very effective federal government response. And Hoover even made things worse in the sense that when his more limited approach didn't work well, he became stubborn. He dug in his heels and there was a certain amount of denial about how serious the problem was. And then when veterans came to Washington, unemployed veterans in the summer of 1932, the year he came up for re-election, they wanted Congress to pay them a bonus for their service in World War I. That wasn't due yet and they wanted it paid early and their view was, well, we're jobless. We've served the country. We really could use the money to help feed our families and so on. And we would go out and spend the money to buy essentials, and that would help the economy too. And Hoover and Congress, which was controlled more or less by the Republicans then, refused. And that in and of itself need not have really spoiled his chance for re-election. But what else did he do? He sent the army in to drive them out of Washington. 
And once that happened, his standing with the middle of the electorate sort of collapsed and Hoover lost. So there's both the stock market crash, which exposed other underlying weaknesses in the economy, especially too much borrowing and risky investments, but also an ineffective federal government response. And the result of all of that was all of a sudden there was a crisis that really changed people's priorities and their attitudes. It was almost weird. As recently as 1929, the orthodoxy was the federal government should balance its budget. And in the 20s, not only did the federal government run a balanced operation, they ran a surplus. They were reducing the size of the federal government's outstanding debt from World War I. And then all of a sudden, the desire for federal government help to rescue people overwhelmed that. And so federal government under Roosevelt began to run substantial year-after-year deficits. But all of a sudden, the voters didn't seem to care. Vastly more important to them was that some sort of relief system be created and other ways of employing the unemployed. And that became the New Deal. And considering that Hoover had made much of his national bona fides during the relief effort for the 1927 Great Flood of the Mississippi River, it's strange that he took such a hands-off approach to the Depression. Right. And he also had a very good record associated with helping feed Europe right after World War I as a humanitarian and so on. And so people thought initially that he would be very well suited. Why wasn't he? His view was that those were very sort of limited in time and scope situations. World War I is unique. The flooding in the Mississippi is regionalized and localized. And it's a one-time event, presumably not likely to be repeated. His objection to things like federal deposit insurance and a system of federal relief was that he thought they were likely to take on a life of their own. They would become permanently expanded roles for the federal government. And he was right about that in the sense that that's what happened. But the point was the view of the voters, at least a lot of them, by the early 1930s, was that the federal government necessarily must play a bigger role. And if you asked experts about this, they'd say, well, Herbert Hoover grew up in a farming community, and his vision of self-help was informed by that. In other words, when most Americans lived on farms or in small towns near farms, in hard times, the possibility of self-help was much greater. You could forage for fuel, presumably grow your own food. You could create a shelter for yourself and so on. And what he really fundamentally misjudged was the much more limited capacity for self-help in hard times in a country where the population was increasingly becoming metropolitan. Folks who lived in cities and larger towns just do not have the same opportunities to go hunting and fishing during hard times and, and all the rest. And so arguably that shift, the growth of major metropolitan America as a fraction of the population, meant that the federal government had to do things that it had never done before, uh, that its role on the civilian or domestic side would be permanently expanded. And Hoover just never quite grasped that. And that ended his career. It's the first time he'd ever failed at anything, and he failed badly in the sense that he was voted out of office by a very wide margin. And he never fully accepted that result. Now, before we move on to the New Deal and FDR, there's a couple of individuals that you kind of follow through the course of the decades in your book, Beatrice Bauck, later known as Beatrice Zent, and George Perkins. How did you pick these two people? Why did you pick these two people? I might answer that in the reverse order. The book is expressly intended primarily for educated general readers. What I wanted to do was find ways to make what I was telling accessible. So in my head, the ideal 
audience, the primary audience for this book, is someone today who's interested in the plight of the middle class, concerned about it, and is interested in how it got bigger, more prosperous and secure the last time, right? Because that might tell us important things about how to go about doing that again. And it's partly a cautionary tale. Not everything about that process was positive, and we can come back to that later. And so I thought, in addition to the sort of the narrative parts that you're describing, the story of the Depression and so on, it might be helpful to follow a few people who experience these things as individuals, because that would help readers sort of process what the larger trends actually translated into in terms of regular folks' lives. And in terms of available source material, these two people are both relatives. And so Beatrice Bauck is my spouse's, my wife's maternal grandmother, and George Perkins is my maternal grandfather. And both of them live to be 100 years old, with minds intact until the end. And so my wife and I knew them growing up and had a very clear sense of, from talking to them about what their lives were like. And both of them experienced this story. And so they seemed good representative examples. I mean, they're not scientifically representative, but they've served the purpose of giving real-world individual examples of what it was like to pass through these experiences. Do you remember talking to your grandfather Perkins about that? Oh, yes. He and I were close. We talked about a lot of these things. I was interested in history from an early age. He likes history, and so we had the chance to discuss it a lot. It was also interesting to me, that generation was distinctive. In other words, the Great Depression and World War II in particular were defining experiences, shaping ones. And those things happened long before I was born, so I didn't remember these things. I wasn't shaped in the same way by them, but they were, and that was interesting. The New Deal, pushed by President Roosevelt, was famous for its alphabet soup of policies and projects. Which ones do you think were most effective in this time leading up to World War II? The temporary emergency relief and the bank deposit insurance were things done very quickly. They did what they were supposed to do. In other words, they stopped the problem of the threat of mass starvation and so on. People ate poorly, a lot of them in the 1930s, but mass starvation was averted when the federal relief system began. And the banking system had more or less shut down by the time Roosevelt took over. But his intervention along with Congress and the Treasury Department, the legislation that was passed helped rescue most of the banks, thereby sort of preserving the savings of the broad middle. Americans were not wiped out in terms of their savings, and that's very important. The Social Security system is generally viewed as the single most popular and successful New Deal initiative of the 1930s, and it created this system of more or less compulsory savings for old age. And there are other parts of the program, but that's the most important part to most people. And in a country where increasingly people lived in cities and towns and they were exposed on a daily basis to advertising that was very persuasive and encouraged them to spend, having some mechanism for savings that didn't require as much self-control or self-discipline was very helpful to people. In other words, that's different when you're living on a farm and if you want to think of it about it this way. The only advertising is the Sears Roebuck catalog. You can put it up on a shelf and not look at it. And then on a daily basis, the pressures on you to buy things are not all that great. It's different once you have magazines, newspapers, radio, and then television sort of on a daily basis 
encouraging you to spend. And so Social Security really worked a revolution, not an immediate one, because it relied upon regular contributions over a 30-year period to mature fully. But modern maturity or modern old age eventually materialized, and old people in this country have a lot more economic security than they used to have. And then the one other thing I would mention on the, the tall list, the upper list of most important, would be the work relief programs. In other words, there are different ways of administering relief. In the British system, they just provide handouts to unemployed people. The American model in the 1930s was much more money for work through the WPA, as it was known, and other programs. And a lot of what was done was uh, in the nature of what today we would call infrastructure development and maintenance. And so a lot of schools were built and roads were built, dams and the like, and most famously, of course, in Tennessee, the Tennessee Valley Authority, right, which helped generate a lot of electricity and so on and lowered the cost of electricity. By the way, for the more rural parts of the country, one other thing I would add, and much of Tennessee in those days was rural, was, of course, rural electrification, because once people living in the countryside had electricity, they could buy the appliances and so on that town and city people elsewhere had already been able to buy. And that was a revolution for people living in rural areas. Yeah, there's just Corps of Engineer dams and lakes all across the South. It did not overwhelmingly transform the South at once, but it helped make the South a more prosperous place. It began that process. And Roosevelt and the New Deal were in some ways popular in the South. As a result, the Southerners in those days were an integral part of the Democratic Party. It made for a very strange kind of politics and culture because the, the South was so rural. Much of the New Deal in the North, the support was biggest in cities. And the cities in the South were almost mutually exclusive categories in those days. But the New Deal provided some work relief, for example, to both kinds of places, both the cities and the South. You talked about the increased acceptance of running deficits at the federal level, but what happened with taxation? You can't put it all on a tab. It's a very fine question with contemporary resonance. If the government begins spending a lot more than it takes in, eventually two things must happen. One is taxes must rise. And the thought in the 30s was you don't want them to rise right away because that might just sort of make the economic situation worse by taking ever more money out of consumption and spending. But eventually taxes will have to rise. And the New Deal approach was to make them rise by far the most on the most affluent on the theory that they were most easily able to pay. And then the second thing that has to happen is the economy uh, has to grow faster in order to sort of grow our way out of the burden of the debt that has been placed upon us. If the overall size of the gross domestic product grows a lot, then the burden of servicing that federal government debt goes down. And you can debate about how much should be done through taxes and how much should be done through faster economic growth. But the point is you need both. And that's eventually what happened. Uh, it's a kind of uh, mixed, unsteady picture in the 30s. But beginning in the early 40s, that's what happens for the next 30 years. Rapid economic growth and relatively high taxes, especially on the affluent. Those were two of the many things that were done that helped the middle class expand. Now, bad economic times are often opportunities for the wealthy to further concentrate capital with being able to buy real property and equity shares at bargain prices. Did this higher taxation have the intent to limit growing inequality, or was that just a byproduct? On the inequality front, the stock market, the Dow lost from the fall of 29 through the summer of 33, 
almost 90% of its value at a time when the investor class was small and at the top. So in a way, the Great Depression begins a march toward equality, in part because the most affluent come down. Their wealth declined greatly because they owned almost all of the stocks. And that was shocking to them, and it produced interesting changes in attitude. It made them more risk-averse. It also gave them somewhat more sympathy for people farther down the income scale who didn't have as much. In other words, it narrowed to some degree the distance between the most affluent and everyone else. So when Franklin Roosevelt ran for re-election in 1936, he did very well with working people and so on, and people whose homes had been saved and whose farms had been saved. But he also got a surprising number of votes in upper-income America, in part because they too had been shocked by what went wrong in the late 20s and early 30s. So through the end of the 30s, there wasn't a huge change in income and wealth distribution. That really arrived with World War II. But the point is there was some, in part because the most affluent came down in terms of their wealth. This is if the wealth of everyone else expanded. It didn't typically. The opportunities for the wealthy to somehow gain an even larger share of everything didn't really work like that in the 30s, in part because the economy was such a mess. Was just extremely interesting to read about was that concept of scientific eating and the evils of flavor satisfaction. Because we begin with the Great Depression and a somewhat ineffective government response, some of your listeners might think this book is all economics and politics. And it does have economics and politics, but it also has social and cultural issues. And they all go together. If the middle class rises, its approach to doing all kinds of things becomes more influential. And so what's middle class eating? The typical diet of the middle class emphasized heavily creating the maximum amount of nutritional food at a reasonable cost. In other words, they're not big spenders, special treats, that sort of things. The emphasis was on, especially because household budgets for middle-class people tend to be kind of limited, especially in hard times, figuring out ways to cook healthy meals for the maximum number of people. One consequence of that was a lot of sort of wholesome food that wasn't necessarily highly flavorful, right? And what is accomplished by that? It's an era when people ate many fewer sweets, and so on. In other words, the Americans had historically been sort of committed to kind of overeating, especially in good times. And all of a sudden, the diet of the country became sort of much more basic and focused on nutrition and canned goods, casseroles that were nutritious, but not so wonderfully tasty that it would tempt you to overeat. And this example came from the very top, from the first family in the White House. The first lady, Eleanor Roosevelt, was determined that the first family would set a good example, which was almost comical in the sense that FDR, President Roosevelt, had grown up in an upper-class world. He was used to fine dining, but he was not in control of the kitchen at the White House. <laughs> His spouse was. And so he quickly discovered that, no, you're not going to be eating these multi-course meals that you're used to with pâté de foie gras and Maryland terrapin soup and so No, you're going to have very sort of standard fare. And that was true the entire 12 years of the Roosevelt tenure in the White House. And so all of a sudden, the president is setting a good example. And this applied to lots of other things. One of my favorite examples, though, is the president's hat. He wore a fedora, and most of the time it looked pretty battered. 
And that was not an accident. In other words, the idea on the part of Eleanor, the First Lady, was you should not dress very expensively. The message that your attire should send is that buy clothes when needed and not more. And so that battered gray fedora was serviceable. Uh, it's the sort of thing that Herbert Hoover would not have done. He'd come out of the business world. He was used to that sort of high-end corporate standard. And so even when he and First Lady Luella Hoover were in the White House, they would eat in the main dining room for their meals. They would be European-style cuisine, fine dining. He thought that was the appropriate thing for the president and the First Lady to be eating. And that quickly went away when the Roosevelts came in and, and didn't come back. And so there is a kind of cultural revolution associated with the rise of the middle class. It meant that more and more of the leaders of society that were publicly visible set an example that middle class people could relate to and easily follow. It explained for me, I saw a postcard once and it had a salt and pepper shaker and it said Ohio spice rack. Again, from the point of view of today, you could overdo things. And in this era, some things are overdone. So one of the interesting questions raised by the book is, what would a new and improved version of this era look like? And on the spice front, the Ohio spice rack would be a little larger than just salt and pepper. But the point is, at the time, American tastes were somewhat different. The nature of the crisis was such that incomes were very, very low for many people. By the way, President Roosevelt wasn't entirely imposed upon him. One of his favorite foods was hot dogs. And hot dogs, for, you know, for the first family to eat them, sent a message that other people could emulate. Although Eleanor was not so fond of hot dogs because they were not all that nutritious. But they are filling. They are. And they can also humanize upper-class people. So when the king and queen of England visited the United States in June of 1939, for example, and they were here because war was brewing in Europe, and they wanted to sort of strengthen the sense of connection between the British people and the American people. And there was a picnic at Roosevelt's home in Hyde Park, New York. And FDR's decision was that they would serve hot dogs to the king and queen. And the press were there. And in fairness to the monarchs of that day, they gamely went with it and they had their first hot dogs and were photographed as such in pictures that appeared throughout the English-speaking world, right? And it did something to make them seem more relatable for a lot of ordinary Americans. Well, David, we're having such a good time and we've barely scratched the surface of the book. Do you mind coming back next week and talk about World War II and what came after that? Not at all. I look forward to it. Now, David, I remember being taught in history class that the New Deal wasn't a total success, that it took World War II to really get America back going on its feet. What were the broad cycles of economic results leading up to World War II? I mentioned earlier, last time I was on, that, of course, the 30s were a time of extreme economic hardship. And the Great Depression started in the United States, but it spread elsewhere to Europe and to the Far East. And so it became a kind of global phenomenon. Economic problems can destabilize countries and regions. And so the international system, if you want to put it that way, had been fragile even before the Great Depression. And then when it came along, it became even more unstable. And one unfortunate response in some places was to militarize and become militarily aggressive. So Germany and Japan's governments being the leading examples of that. Parallel with the growth of the Great Depression came the growth of more militarization and more aggression. And eventually that problem came to America's shores. As Europe and the Far East descended into armed conflict, eventually the Americans were drawn into that war, World War II. And you're quite correct 
The best economic definition we have of the Great Depression is a time of double-digit unemployment, which arrived in 1931 and stayed through the end of 1941, when the country was attacked at Pearl Harbor. It's really the wartime years that ended the double-digit unemployment of the Great Depression and really led to a completely different economic situation in the country. Most of the growth and expansion of the middle class happened in the 40s, 50s, and 60s in a tremendous way, an unprecedented way. With the draft taking so many able-bodied men into the services, so much defense production going on, even getting women, Rosie the Riveters, into the act, were there any other programs that were necessary to help folks at that time, or did that pretty much come to an end during the war? Well, you can fight wars in different kinds of ways. World War II was fought in a New Deal-ish kind of way, in part because President Roosevelt was still in the White House and the Democrats controlled Congress. What do I mean by New Deal-ish? The wages paid to the workers who worked in the factories making war goods were high, and it was easy for them to join unions if they wanted to. And that also made for more worker power, better wages, better working conditions, and the like. The wages paid to soldiers, sailors, marines, and so on were also very high by the standards of the world at that time. So if you were part of the 16.5 million who served in the World War II era U.S. military, you were well-paid, well-fed. And the tax structure to pay for all this collected a great deal from those in the top fifth of the income distribution. And so incomes for people in the middle three-fifths of the income distribution rose a lot, and the tax burden on those in the top fifth expanded a lot. And the result was not just a great big economic boom during the war, but also a very real movement transfer of income and wealth from the top to the middle. The only time, actually, in modern American history when that happened. And then towards the end of the war, the question of what to do for the veterans, there were about 12 million of them currently serving in the final year of the war. And the concern was if they all came home without some sort of government intervention, that they would simply become jobless again and return the conditions of the Great Depression. And so Congress, pushed by President Roosevelt, passed what became known as the GI Bill of Rights. And it provided all kinds of benefits for returning veterans. The ability to buy a home with no money down and a low mortgage rate backed by the federal government, to go to school, even college at the expense of the federal government, to start a small business or a farm with help from the federal government. Those things, the GI Bill, hugely important in expanding the size and prosperity and security of the middle class after the war ended in 1945. Were women who served in the military able to access those GI Bill benefits as well? They were, but they were a small fraction of all veterans. So about 16.5 million served, and only about 500,000 were women. So the typical recipient of the GI Bill, overwhelmingly, was male. And this is one of the ways in which this era, from the point of view of today, seems somewhat problematic. In other words, it isn't as if American women didn't benefit in larger numbers than 500,000 from the GI Bill. The typical way in which an American woman benefited was indirectly through being married to a veteran. And the whole New Deal era model tended to prioritize male breadwinning. And I don't mean to indict that system. There are people today who really like it. He earns most, if not all, of the income. She stays home and is focused on home life and raising kids. And that was very emblematic, characteristic of the era that I write about. But it doesn't work well for everyone. It can create problems down the road, and my book deals with that. And so the enthusiasm, if you want to put it that way, for marriage and family in the post-World War II period is partly the result of government programs, encouragement to do this, 
but it also stems from sort of pent-up consumer demand for home life, stable home life, marriage, and family, because they weren't available much in the 30s and the first half of the 40s. In the 30s, you have the Great Depression. The unemployed male is not a very eligible candidate for marriage. And then you have the war when so many able-bodied men were away that it wasn't really possible for family formation to, to take place in that way. So for about 15 years, there really was, or, or longer, 16, 17 years, kind of an interference or an obstacle to this. And so not surprisingly, after World War II, there was an unusually pronounced demand for marriage, family, and kids. And that's what a lot of people did. But again, it isn't the right model for everyone. And even if it works well in the short to medium run, a suitable couple finds each other and they enjoy getting married and staying married and having kids, all the rest. They tended to marry young, the GI Bill helped, and to have kids young. And so for a lot of American women who liked that arrangement, they found themselves in their early to mid-40s victims of their own success. In other words, they had done such a good job raising kids, and the overall era was conducive in various ways to helping middle-class people succeed as parents, that their kids didn't need them very much once they grew up. And many of these women were living in suburbs by then because mass suburbia explodes after World War II. And they discovered it was a very isolating place to be a homemaker whose kids had grown up. And if you're wondering, well, why would they design the system that way? It was new. The rise of the middle class was new. Mass suburbia was new as a place for middle class people to live. In doing this, not everything about it was positive, in part because the people designing the system didn't think through the long-term consequences of what they were doing. With so many men being killed in the war, were there any effects of having a, a surplus of women, as it were, in a time where marriage was the desired state, and that there might be a shortage of available men to them? Well, that was certainly much more true in other countries. The countries that had the worst rates of death and very serious injury, the Soviet Union, Germany, Japan. One of the things about the American experience in World War II is that roughly one out of every 40 people who served was killed. In other words, the normal experience for an American GI was to come home, which doesn't mean that everything is hunky-dory necessarily. In other words, many of the men had problems. They might have been injured in some way, either mentally, physically, or both, right? But the point is they mostly returned. So there wasn't a deficit of sort of eligible men. How much there's a deficit of highly desirable prospects is another matter, right? People who seemed very much unchanged by the war, physically and mentally. And it's kind of hard to know about that for sure. But the point is, one of the reasons the move to marriage and family was so pronounced in the United States was that compared with the other major combatants, you didn't get a huge imbalance demographically between men and women, the way you did in Germany and the Soviet Union and Japan. African-American men who had served in the Navy, Marines, and the Army, when they came back, what ways did they find themselves excluded from GI Bill opportunities? Right. In those days, most of the Democrats with most of the seniority in Congress were Southerners, white Southerners, committed to the old segregation system in law and life. And they did not want the GI Bill used to undermine that, to promote black equality in the southern states. One of the things they insisted upon, the leaders of Congress who were mostly from the South in writing the legislation, was that there would be local and state administration of this. And so African Americans who lived in the South and the border states in particular, when they came home, to find out what kind of GI Bill benefits they could qualify for and would be supported in applying for, they had to go to these sort of local and state offices where, you bet, 
they encountered this sort of white segregationist official who steered them in certain directions. And so they tended to be steered toward the lower level opportunities in the employment pool, that kind of thing. So it's not as if they don't get GI benefits at all. They just get Jim Crow GI benefits. In other words, the sort of uh, second tier ones. Another very important change or difference between their experience and white folks is that as mass suburbia expanded beginning in the later 1940s, it was essentially closed to black people. And that mattered because these new suburban houses that were built starting in the later 1940s were intended expressly for people with ordinary incomes. And they were brand new houses, and they were generally attractive places to live, and they were very good investments, in part because they were subsidized in terms of purchase by the federal government. And so African-Americans missed the opportunity to participate in that post-war suburban housing opportunity with long-term consequences, both in terms of racial segregation, but also in terms of the ability of the black community to build wealth through home ownership. Yeah, the hit to generational wealth was just immense from that. Right. The movement in the north out of cities to suburbs did create more housing availability in urban neighborhoods for black people. But the housing that was available was not as good an investment. Often it was older and it was not necessarily as good an investment. More money had to be spent on maintenance. The taxes tended to be higher in cities and the like. And so even if black people did buy houses in cities, they tended not to see their wealth grow in the way that it did for suburbanites. So the segregation of the era meant that most black people experienced it differently. It doesn't mean that there wasn't a black middle class, but it meant that it didn't grow as large as a fraction of all black people as the white version. And with lasting harmful results, and my book goes into that in terms of disturbances, riots in the cities in the 60s, because so many job opportunities also left for the suburbs. And increasingly, Black people were in cities where unemployment was becoming higher and higher. You mentioned earlier about Japan, Germany, Italy, and other European countries losing so many men of age. And I hadn't really considered, and you bring this up in the book, that the physical devastation, losing manufacturing capability and having fewer working age men in those countries really gave America wide open access to manufacturing markets around the world. Right. One of the distinctive things about this era is that barriers to trade and immigration were high. And they had been high in the late 20s. Now, under President Hoover, actually, barriers to trade actually went up because he was convinced that European firms would try to take advantage of the Great Depression to weaken an already weak American economy. So barriers to trade and immigration were high, and the American economy was more insulated, if you want to put it that way, from foreign competition. And then the war came along and so heavily damaged manufacturing facilities in Europe and the Far East in Japan. And so there's this sort of 25-year period where there's uh, really very little effective foreign competition. And so managers in America, business managers, could afford to be more generous with their workers in the sense that they were not facing this intense foreign competition of the sort that they've been facing in recent years. And American workers, if you want to put it that way, were not facing competition from lots of new immigrants who might work longer and harder for less. And so the era is distinctive in that Americans were able to prosper 
and the workday shifted to this Monday through Friday 9 to 5 norm, which was very family-friendly in many ways. It meant that dads in particular were home in the evenings and on weekends, that sort of thing. And so it really is something that many people remember in a very positive way. I mean, they're older now, grandparents, about the era. Uh, it eventually created problems because, of course, foreign competition did revive, and that meant that the American worker in some ways and the American industry was not as competitive. And also the shortage of immigrants, if you want to put it that way, the small number of immigrants, it became a problem because immigrants contribute things. They often work very hard and help start new businesses and contribute to American economic growth, whether you're talking about Andrew Carnegie or some more recent kind of immigrant to America. And my book goes into that. In other words, the tendency in writing about this period, and one of the reasons I wrote the book, is it tends either to celebrate the period, the greatest generation, that sort of thing, more or less uncritically, or to condemn it, to point out all the flaws. And what we don't have, I think, is enough that sort of tries to be fair-minded, right, if balanced. In other words, here's what was good about this. Here's what was not so good. The second is a byproduct of the first. But in fairness to the people who created the system, they were starting more or less from scratch. Let's build a great big middle class in modern America when that had not been done before. And so the hope, again, is if you're interested in the middle class and you're worried about it and you want it to get bigger and stronger again and want some sense of how one might thoughtfully go about that, uh, the way I talk about the competition issue is one, one example of that. In other words, what have we learned? from the previous time. Now, in terms of negative consequences, I mean, there are tangible ones that you address in the book, but in the sense that we have this memory of these halcyon days and they might be something that aren't obtainable again and they contribute to the national discourse and the national thought on what we expect from our economy and our government and that that just may not be ever possible again. Right. Well, one interesting question is, is this an utterly anomalous period, exceptional, irrelevant in some sense, because it could never be recreated? And there are people who argue that, that it's simply irrelevant. My view is different. In other words, the American system, it tends to solve certain kinds of problems in one era and then create other kinds of problems. And then priorities shift. And if attitudes change, if people want something enough, then it tends to drive the system in a different direction. And just to give you an example, for a long time, scholars and others have been writing that the era of persistent double-digit unemployment was essentially the great exception in modern American history. It's something that happened in the 30s and never happened again. Uh, and as recently as December of last year, if I had tried to tell you, not that I knew, but if I tried to tell you what the unemployment rate in Tennessee would be like this spring, you would not have believed me, right? In other words, one of the reminders is suddenly and unexpectedly, depression era in the sense of double-digit unemployment has returned as a result of something unforeseen, the pandemic. And you'll notice how quickly attitudes in Washington and elsewhere changed on deficit spending. In other words, an astonishing sum of money thus far, I think, what, $3 trillion has been added to the federal government deficit to sort of bail out businesses and individuals because of the economic problems. Well, and uh, one would argue that deficit spending wasn't a concern when those big tax cuts came recently either. And we've had – and taxes taxes in – you could argue in the 40s and 50s and 60s got to be too high, and that created – problems. If they get to be too low, that can create a different set of problems. But I'm sort of pointing to the sudden shift in priorities as a result of 
the sudden return of hard times in the employment market. But this bears on your question of, you know, is this sort of irrelevant? If you think that the kinds of problems that befell the country in the late 20s and 30s and so on will never happen again, then you might think this is sort of a completely irrelevant story. But there are parallels, right? In other words, between what happened in the, the late 20s and 30s and today. And now I don't want to alarm anyone. We have Social Security now. We have bank deposit insurance now. The safeguards, unemployment insurance that were developed that weren't in place in the 30s are here now. But some things are worse. They didn't have credit cards or student loans in 1929. So the point is, if you're trying to grasp where I'm going with this, one of the major, perhaps the most single most important driver of change was that a great many Americans began to feel insecure in the late 20s and early 30s. And that changed priorities and then public policies and then social reality. And that sense of pervasive insecurity has returned. How long it lasts, no one can be quite sure. But Mr. Powell, the head of the Federal Reserve, suggests that we're going to be in this for a while. And the longer we're in it, the more that insecurity will be there and the more the shift in priorities, which suggests that the era has more relevance than some might have imagined. You mentioned earlier cultural changes that you address in the book, and one of those being that women worked very hard on farms and keeping the uh, the family home running and even working outside the home. We have this idea of the uh, middle class 50s era with the, the housewife and not having too hard of a life, but that was only for people of a certain income strata. Right. And again, it's regionally specific. It was harder to do in the poorer parts of the country. And now in the southern states, for example, it's still a more rural farm-based economy than up north. And you can call a farm spouse a housewife, but it doesn't fully capture what's going on. A family farm is a small business. Both partners tend to do a lot of work not just of an inside-the-house domestic nature but and so on, where you really see the male breadwinner woman as homemaker model in its most pronounced 50s kind of way is in major metropolitan areas. He's putting on a jacket and tie or overalls and going off to work in the family car, and she's at home either in an urban neighborhood or in a suburb looking after three to four kids, statistically speaking, that sort of thing. But it doesn't work for everyone, in part because you have to have enough income What's really distinctive about the era of the 50s and 60s was how large a fraction of the population had sufficient income through him to make that arrangement viable. And again, some like it, some don't. Many people view it as functional for raising young children, in part because it's really hard to duplicate the quality of care through paid daycare that you can get through a parent being at home with young children. But not everyone wants that or favors that today. In other words, if you try to imagine a new and improved version, it would make that option available, but not mandate it for everyone, if that makes sense. And today, the cost of living is in some ways higher. People's expectations are also higher, but also wages and salaries paid to men, many of them are lower in real terms than they used to be. And that's made it harder for people to achieve that model early in life. In other words, early in married a life when they have young children. So you could have a really interesting debate about would it be desirable to make that more attainable? 
at least in the early marital years, but less rigid thereafter. And by the way, it assumes that there are available spouses to which you want to get married. If unemployment among men in a demographic group is very high, then the whole model doesn't seem to be very relevant at all. And there's some of that today. There was some of that then, but there's more of that today. American women, I think, of that era had mixed feelings about it, understandably. There were things they liked about it, and there were things they really didn't like about it. The most exceptional women, in the sense the most highly educated with career aspirations, often found the era completely frustrating, and for understandable reasons. Sandra Day O'Connor, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the kind of person who had this wonderful education at a top law school, did really well there, and simply could not get the kind of job that the men in her class could get. On the other hand, those kinds of folks don't fit within the definition of graduates of Harvard and Stanford law schools or Columbia Law School. The really interesting question is what the women of that era of more middling education and income and aspirations wanted. And there's a debate about that. This might be a little too psychologically based, but do you think like the homogeneity of assembly line goods kind of influenced that desire for a monoculture amongst the middle class? Again, it depends on who you're making things for. The American system is very adaptive. It follows movements in income and wealth. And so if all of a sudden the people in the middle 60% of the income distribution, the middle three-fifths, have much more money and people in the top fifth have less, then more of what's available for sale in stores is going to reflect that. And middle-class tastes, they don't want really expensive things. And so the cars of that era and the toys of that era, just to give two examples, tend to be simpler, less elaborate and expensive. Now, some things are really well made. The refrigerator of 1955 is built to last for 30 years, that sort of thing. But the idea when it came to consumer durables for middle-class people is they would buy them once and they would last and last and last. And so middle-class people have their own consumer preferences. The striking thing about the era, how much of what was available for sale was really made for them, for people who were not either rich or poor. And again, now if you go to malls and so on, there's a more bipolar world, really expensive things and really cheap things and less in between. And we could talk about restaurants as similar, you know, it, this applies to many other areas of American life. And the book talks in some sense about that. But you get the idea. So if middle class people rose again, more of the um, landscape of America would be reconfigured to work well for them. And that was popular at the time because those folks were so numerous. And one suspects it would be popular again if it's done the right way. Again, in culture, could you talk about the middle brow and how it came to dominate arts and entertainment in America at that time? In the mid to late 20s, there tended to be two worlds heavily. There's the sort of highbrow world of arts, literature, and so on, music, and there would be sort of lowbrow things, what you'd see at the county fair or the circus. And none of this is a put down, right? In other words, it can sound that way in the minds of cultural critics, but there was very expensive formal entertainment. And there was relatively inexpensive informal entertainment and not much in between. And then with the rise of the middle class, there began to be things in between. So what does that mean? The advent of the cheap mass paperback. As ever more people went through high school, the number of people who wanted to read for pleasure and so on rose. And so the mass paperback emerged as an inexpensive alternative to the expensive hardback book that regular folks with ordinary incomes could afford and were written at a high school grade level appropriate for them. And so, so there was ever more of that. The same would be true in music, not classical music, 
so difficult to understand, or art exhibits for that matter, that folks with a high school education would be unable to enjoy it, but more formal and elaborate in some ways than what you would find at the county fair, that kind of thing. So so the world of middle brow or middle culture expanded. And again, a, a popular development for lots of people whose tastes were somewhere in between people at the, the very top tier and those who liked the sort of the least expensive and least complicated kinds of amusements. That's uh, kind of Broadway, isn't that? Kind of like the, the king of middle brow entertainment? Right. Well, Broadway can be done differently. In other words, in recent decades, tickets for Broadway shows have been very expensive. And so the emphasis has been on very expensive productions, lots of special effects, and so on. And some of those are very impressive, but the shows are not really affordable for people with ordinary incomes. What's notable about my era is Broadway reconfigured, much more an emphasis on good scripts and stories that were readily accessible to people of ordinary level of education, and ticket prices that reflected that. In other words, if you heavily orient good stories and songs that the vast middle can enjoy, then the productions are less expensive to mount and the ticket prices can be lowered. And so what's the model in Broadway in the 40s, 50s, and 60s? Selling a lot of tickets, mostly to middle-class people, to see the kinds of things they want to see, not a smaller number of tickets to much more high-income folks who see things that are much more expensive to produce and maybe about things that a lot of middle-class people aren't terribly interested in. And again, you can overdo it in either direction. What's interesting is how many Broadway plays and musicals, especially of that era, became stables. Uh, the kinds of things that high schools have been doing ever since because they were so memorable and popular with the broad middle class. Now, there's something that the middle class and America avoided dealing with back in the, the 50s and 60s, and we're still dealing with that now today, and that's the concept of sustainability. Correct. Much of the growth in the 40s and 50s was in basic manufacturing, and it was a pollution-based prosperity, right? And so the environmental side of more rapid economic growth was created serious problems. It's in the 50s in particular that you begin to get ever more toxins, huge increases in the air and the water. The environmental issue, you can divide it to sort of two basic categories. There's the aesthetics of it. Does it make the landscape look unattractive? And people have debates about what is attractive and what is unattractive. But the thing that is of greatest concern to voters then and now, citizens, is are we poisoning ourselves through the production of all these things? through all this economic growth. And there were definitely ever more poisons in the air and the water. And some of it is the result of ever more cars. The middle class of that era loved the expansion of cars. Some of it's the result of factories and so on. But the point is that began to create very serious problems. And so one of the tales of the story, again, is or themes of the book, is if you don't anticipate how far these trends could go, you don't anticipate the problems they could create. And so the economic boom of the 40s and the 50s and 60s does make air pollution and water pollution a lot worse. If you can put on your prognostication hat, do you have a picture of what the middle class in America might look over the next 50 years? This is my hope for people who like to discuss. And by the way, if you're interested in this topic and you're not a reader, I just want to remind your listeners that it also comes in an audio book format. It's in all the formats, Kindle and everything else. But if you're more of a listener, uh, and many of the people who tune into radio are, they could listen to the book as well as read it. It's also priced in a very middle-class kind of way on purpose. 
Uh, and so the one of the things that I would hope would grow out of it is you read the book and someone you know also reads it. And then you have a conversation about what a new and improved version might look like. There's much to debate about that. And it's a big and varied country. And people might have somewhat different preferences in various different places. Uh, the point I would make, the sort of general point is, if you read the book, you get a clearer sense of what a new and improved version might look like. And it's an interesting way of thinking about where we are, right? In other words, uh, what would be a constructive step forward from where we are now? What would that look like? One of the most fundamental concerns about the era that I write about was the, the sort of rigidity of it. It presented one way of living as the best way for everyone. And of course, it's the United States, not everyone is the same. And so one new and improved version would be something that's more accepting of difference in a variety of different ways. By the way, given that you're in Memphis and in Tennessee, a new and improved version for sure would mean that this time the southern states participate fully and equally. In other words, it's not something that's primarily for northerners. And for southerners, I think they would find that very interesting. In other words, I think for a lot of southerners, they struggled with this era in some ways because it wasn't as robust and middle class as it was elsewhere. The South was still sort of recovering economically in a lot of ways. And so it can almost sound like something that happened somewhere else. But it would definitely be an improvement if the South had the experience that the other parts of the country did in that regard. Well, it's interesting to see how the immigration from the Rust Belt toward the Sun Belt might affect people's view on these types of things. Right, because you have people who lived in the North, in these other places, and not everyone liked it. In other words, some of the people who migrated to, into the Sun Belt didn't like that era and preferred the Sun Belt, which was somewhat different, more entrepreneurial, higher risk, higher reward, all that sort of thing. Again, you can overdo this in either direction. It also, by the way, the era I write about, it had more stability and security, but somewhat less freedom to be individual, right? And if you look at the high school yearbooks from the 1950s and early to mid-60s, and you look at the boys' haircuts, they almost all look alike. And you can see why the baby boomers, at least some of them, eventually rebelled against that. There was more uniformity in almost everything, and not everyone wants that. On the other hand, Americans in this era that I write about had more in common with each other, and that to some degree lowered social tension. It made it easier for people to get along in various ways. And it wasn't a perfect era, and there was racial segregation and other sorts of tensions. But the point is, today, America is a much more varied place. There are very positive things about that, but it also at times makes it more difficult to get the two major parties to work together, to get communities to work together, in part because the population is so much more varied. So why did you decide to write this book for a more general audience instead of a more complex, in-depth one for your colleagues and your students? Well, partly it had to do with the 2016 presidential election, which was really interesting to someone like me because usually American presidential elections and candidates and themes emphasize the future. Whatever you think of President Trump, his campaign in 2016 had, to an historian, a fascinating message. It wasn't make America great. It was make America great again. In other words, it was explicitly backward looking. And what he meant by that, President Trump, when he ran, then a candidate, Donald Trump, was like the America that he remembered when he grew up. Donald Trump was born in 1946, the first year of the baby boom. 
and so was Bill Clinton, and so was George W. Bush, all born in 1946, the first year of the boom. And so he grew up, turned 21 in 1967. So he grew up in that more middle-class era. And there were things he really liked about it. And his core supporters for him, especially in the Midwest, tended to be older white middle-class voters who remembered that era positively. And they responded very positively, many of them, to his message. And my response to this was, well, the trouble with this is it's a kind of highly selective rendering of what America was like then. Some things were great. Other things were not so great. So my hope was in writing the book and aiming for a wide readership was to contribute just to a more thoughtful discussion of the pluses and minuses of that era as we sort of try to find a way to recreate some new and improved version, right? And there's a Republican Trump version of that. There's a Joe Biden version of that and so on. And so it's really not written with any particular partisan objective in mind, but just to get people thinking in a more balanced way about what was the middle class era in which so many people who are baby boomers grew up, what was it really like? And how could the best parts of it be replicated if possible without the parts that seem either irrelevant or positively harmful coming back again. I like to point out to people that the etymology of nostalgia is either like return to pain or the pain of returning. Right. Well, and memories have faded, right? You have to be older. I sometimes get a question from students that I teach. Why are all these presidential candidates lately so old? Which, to, you know, to an 18 or 20-year-old, being in your 70s or late 60s seems really old, and I understand that. And I point out that, well, because the plight of the middle class has moved front and center again, the sense that it's too small, that it's in trouble, that it's shrinking, it has tended to help older candidates run for the highest office because they grew up in that more middle-class era of before. They remember it. So they tend to have an edge in understanding the unhappiness of a lot of voters with the plight of the middle class today. One of the striking things is about the last presidential election and this one is how old the major party nominees are. In other words, if they're, they're all products of the era that I write about. And also an answer to that is because young people don't vote enough to push the age of those candidates down. If older people vote in higher percentages, then they're going to appeal to those people. Right. And the baby boom was the largest single cohort in American history. People, once they start paying significant amounts of taxes, tend to vote more in general. So young people tend not to pay a lot in tax. And so there are various reasons why they don't vote as much. But there's also a lot of these folks. Or as baby boomers sometimes say, when we were young, young was trendy. Now that we're older, older is trendy. The result of demography, of just how many of them there are. It's nice to have that kind of power. Right. Well, it won't last forever, right? Baby boomers eventually will fade from the landscape, but not yet. What do we know for certain as of today is that the next president will also be someone who was born in the 1940s. Joe Biden, if it's him, he wasn't technically a baby boomer. He was born before the boom, but he was born in the 40s. And he also grew up in this era. I think his nickname when he was in the Senate for all those years was Middle Class Joe, a nickname bestowed upon him by his fellow senators, because that's the kind of background he had. And that was the kind of person he was when he was there. Do you have uh, any thoughts on which way the bellwether state of Ohio might go this year? Well, Ohio is not always a bellwether, but usually, especially in the past century or so. At the moment, the race is too close to call. 
And that's a surprise to many people because President Trump won here easily the last time. But it reflects what has happened to the society and the economy since the pandemic hit. And I think to a degree growing dissatisfaction with the federal government's handling of this. So that Ohio is now essentially undecided is a very significant change. And on balance is good news for the challenger. Well, Professor, I want to thank you so much. Very kind of you to, to share your book with me and, and our audience as well. Thank you so much. Well, you're very welcome, and thanks for having me on the show. David Stedman is the author of Promised Land, How the Rise of the Middle Class Transformed America, 1929 through 1968, which is published by Scribner. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.